Over four decades ago, medical device pioneers John Abley and Pete Nicholas co-founded Boston Scientific to get life-saving technologies into the hands of physicians. Today, thousands of Boston Scientific employees are continuing that mission. We'll begin to tell their stories here on the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. This is a super special episode. Uh, this is the keynote conversation I had with CEO Mike Mahoney at our Device Talks Boston meeting in May. Uh, this was the closing keynote interview for day one. And uh, I'll describe the room. It uh, was a large uh, room at the Boston Convention Center. Uh, actually, three rooms uh, with the walls down. Uh, combined into one, over 600 people jam-packed in the room to uh, hear Mike Mahoney's story about how he became uh, a medtech executive, how he decided to make the move from J&J to Boston Scientific, and uh, what's been done to uh, change how Boston Scientific operated from the time he took over when it needed some help to today when it's really uh, a growth machine in the medical device industry. So I'm grateful for the time that uh, Mike Mahoney took. I know it was a busy day, busy couple of days uh, over that week for Boston Scientific executives. I know I had some other meetings going on, but uh, Mike Mahoney made the time to come over uh, and really entertain and engage and enlighten the audience. And uh, I'm very grateful that he's allowing us to take that conversation and move it over to uh, the podcast form. So thanks, Mike Mahoney, for your thoughts and your time. Thank you to Boston Scientific for uh, for making him available. And thanks, of course, to you for uh, joining us on this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. But once again, before we get into this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast, I would love to bring in our sponsor, Resonant Link. I'm speaking with CEO and co-founder Grayson Zulaf. Grayson, tell us a bit about Resonant Link. What does Resonant Link do? Yeah, so Resonant Link is number one in wireless power for implantable medical devices. And our mission is really to make the standard of care for active implantables a rechargeable standard. So right now, for people that have pacemakers or mini neurostimulators, they need a surgery to replace the device, to replace the battery when it runs out. And that could be as frequently as every year or every decade. But that requires an invasive surgery to replace them. Resonant Link, the company that I co-founded, was really launched to make the future of these devices rechargeable so that people don't need surgeries when their batteries run out. And recharging them is most importantly non-invasive, but also fast, it's seamless, it's easy to use, and it's something that fits nicely into their lives. I will hear more from Grayson Zuloff of Resident Link a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more about Resident Link, which was a sponsor of Device Talks Boston, go to its website, resident-link.com. Well, let's just step back a bit and talk about your path. Uh, what drew you to the metal device industry? And uh, let's start with that, and then we can talk about some changes that may have occurred since what you What drew me to the industry? Yeah. What was, what was your first, uh, why, oh, why right. MedTech? Sure. Uh, it's a quick one. Hello, everybody. First of all, this is the most uh, special, uh, incredible industry in the world. 
I know that now. I didn't, maybe didn't know it when I was 23. So what attracted me to it a long time ago, uh, some know the story, uh, my grandfather was a cardiac surgeon, and I uh, always admired him. Uh, he taught, uh, he didn't teach me how to smoke a pipe, but I kind of smoked a pipe <laughs> with him uh, when he wasn't around. Cool but um, I admired him very much. I wanted to be a, a, a doctor, and I ran into the organic chemistry buzzsaw uh, in college and diverted to business, and I wanted to get a job in healthcare. Uh, if I couldn't be a physician, I wanted to be in healthcare. And I ended up getting a job eventually uh, with uh, GE Healthcare mm-hmm. uh, when I was a young, young kid and uh, sold uh, nuclear medicine cameras and CAT scanners and had a wonderful career with uh, GE for about 10 years. Then I went on to a startup where I learned the most of my career at Global Healthcare Exchange and J&J in Boston Scientific. And, and so I was always drawn to uh, how can you work in an industry that impacts patients' lives? Like, like no kidding around, the products we do save people's lives. Uh, and you get to be working a team and you get paid. The same time, so I just always thought healthcare and med tech in particular mm-hmm. uh, is the place to be, and I've been so fortunate uh, to be in the industry for a long time. You, you initially targeted the job at GE Healthcare. That was a firm, you, a company you wanted to work for. What were the qualities that you saw in GE, and uh, what of those qualities did you hold on to? So, when I was out of college, uh, I lived in the Chicagoland area, and they were such a big employer in the Midwest, and, and they were uh, still, Peter Arduini's a great leader running it now, but they were a great company back then. But they wouldn't hire me, because uh, they wanted engineers, I wasn't an engineer, or they wanted healthcare experience, didn't have that. So I sold cash registers door-to-door for NCR for 18 months, and I knocked on their door uh, every 90 days till they finally hired me, because they were just a leading company. And what I learned so much there, that was, uh, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a very competitive company. And it was a very results-oriented company. And uh, they did a great job with training. And so I, I learned a lot about uh, competing. Uh, I learned a lot about the industry. I learned a lot about uh, taking chances in your career, because I was promoted a bunch of times and mm-hmm. took new jobs and moved around. And they wanted people who, who uh, were willing to make some sacrifices in their career to take on bigger jobs. And uh, it was a great starting point for me. I love that story. It's like Michael Jordan not making his high school team, you know, just yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, look at you now, ha ha. But truth I'll, to be told, yeah, there was one point when I was uh, uh, leading sales for their, uh, it was called their PAC systems back in the day, the radiology information systems. And I said to the uh, head of HR that I wanted to become a general manager. And he said, that'll never happen at GE Healthcare because you've grown up in the sales organization and that's kind of all you've done. And then I ended up leaving to start up Global Healthcare Exchange shortly after that. Mm-hmm. So that uh, was a motivator back in the time, I'd say. And Global Healthcare Exchange, that was started during the, the 90s, kind of the dot-com, yeah. where we started some kind of online marketplace. But that one's a force that's still Fantastic. around and still doing great. So that's, uh, that's outstanding. You, you finally landed. Uh, I want to talk about, for a second, uh, in, in the podcast conversation, you, we had a conversation about leaders versus managers. Hmm. And uh, you were just kind of hitting upon some of the leadership lessons you, you, leadership lessons you, you picked up at GE. What do, how, how do you define, what are the qualities of, of, of a, a leader, an executive, an executive who is a, a leader? How do you quantify that? Well, I think like anyone else, you, you kind of develop your own leadership style. Yeah. I learned a lot, from, as you mentioned, from GE first, and then I did the startup called GHX. Yep. And honestly, that's the job I probably learned the most. Okay. Because I was the second employee there. Uh, we did not, we had a coffee machine. And so you're worried about uh, the balance sheet and cash flow and starting a company and culture and literally from the ground up. Then I was, uh, did that for six years. Then I worked for J&J, mm-hmm. huge company. 
a lot about globalization, uh, talent management, uh, M&A capabilities. And so you kind of uh, combine all those different experiences to create your own uh, leadership uh, style mm -hmm. and your own experiences. So for me, I like to think of, and managers are important for sure, but I think I try to just, I do that to maybe motivate our managers to be leaders. Um, and I think leaders, we try to decentralize Boston Scientific as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And part of the experiences I've learned good and bad is companies can get overly matrixed and uh, overly centralized and be very slow in decision making. And I like, I try to encourage leaders to be comfortable, try to first of all create a platform where they can make decisions mm -hmm. and try to be more decentralized, less matrix, give them more ownership. And leaders I tend to see are more comfortable in actually owning the decision and making the decision, even if they don't have perfect information. Um, I have experiences at previous companies where you'd have the same topic and you'd go to seven different meetings and you might say, hey, we could make a decision today, mm -hmm. uh, but we don't have to. We could have three more meetings about it. Um, and it just sometimes gets repetitive. So we try to create an environment where uh, we encourage leaders to have decision rights and encourage leaders to make decisions. Oft sometimes they're the wrong ones. Sometimes we learn from them but to give them the confidence to empower themselves to make decisions more quickly. And that leads to more agility and seeing more opportunities. So I th just think it's sometimes making those decisions is out of people's comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And we want leaders to run our companies, not managers. When you empower someone to make a decision, you, and you said sometimes it's the wrong decision, what, how do you make that okay, the wrong decision? How do you allow for failure in an organization? Because you're you're pushing someone to, to do maybe something that's a little bit beyond them so they grow, and they're not always gonna succeed. How do you handle that, that part when they don't succeed? Okay, so just to finish the first one, tomorrow you're uh, interviewing Megan Scanlon. Yep. So she's terrific. She's our global leader for our urology business. And so she's responsible for global P&L now. So as a leader, she's able to align resources where she wants around the world. Mm -hmm. How many resources to put in Middle East Africa and China and therefore, we need to maybe cut resources somewhere else to enable that. But it gives her the flexibility to do that and to prioritize R&D projects without having to go through me or a bunch of other people to do that because we empower her as a leader. Um, so I've made tons of mistakes <laughs> in my career and some bigger ones. Uh, but I, I think if, unless, you're, unless you're pushing, uh, you're always going to have some failures. Like we look at M&A, mm -hmm. uh, we've had many companies that we've invested in in our venture portfolio that haven't worked out. We've had some larger deals that we've acquired that haven't worked out. But we've had many more that were successful. M maybe the most promising, I think, technology we see right now is in the pulse field ablation, for those who know, the electrophysiology space. And it has a chance to completely disrupt uh, the existing AF marketplace that is RF and cryo, led by other competitors, where we're not a big player. And we invested in this company nine years ago mm -hmm. at the Series A investor. And that easily could have uh, not worked out, but it worked out fantastic. And so that one deal will make up for four early stage investments that completely flopped, or maybe 10 investments that completely flopped. So you're not going to get every one of them right, but you're better off uh, swinging uh, and taking a swing rather than constantly <laughs> waiting. Yep. And so not all of our R&D projects work. And if everyone works, that means we're not taking enough risk in our R&D programs. So we're always trying to learn. When we do bad M&A, we do diagnosis about what did we do wrong? What did we miss in diligence? Mm -hmm. But too often, as companies get bigger, that's my biggest fear at Boston Scientific. We think we're going to grow you know, at a, probably a billion to billion five a year of wow. new growth. 
every year. And so what happens when companies get bigger, they tend to get slower. And you get more and more finance people, you get more and more lawyers, you get more and more every, everything. No offense to finance, we need them all. But you get more and more risk averse as it goes on. And so we really try to push on innovation internally and M&A and people to where are we taking risk in the company? Because mm-hmm. if you're going to get that large, the size of some of our bigger competitors, you need big things to work to grow faster. And oftentimes you can't uh, play it safe all the time with innovation and M&A uh, and win that way. I will take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Resonant Link. Once again, I am speaking with Grayson Zuloff. Grayson, tell us, how does Resonant Link help medical device companies? We really think about working with medical device companies as their partners in power is what we like to call it. And so when you look at an active implantable device, whether that's a pacemaker, a cardiac device, or a neurostimulator, these are really power and energy devices. You you have a battery inside the body, you're delivering some sort of stimulation, and then you need to recharge that battery to make it easy to use and long lasting. And so Resonant Link works directly with medical device OEMs as their partners in this whole power and energy stack with a very specific expertise and technology suite on the wireless charging side. So today we work with 18 medical device OEMs and that number is growing every day to deliver this fast, easy to use and efficient wireless charging to their patients. And that's great. And let's drill down a bit. Can you talk specifically about your wireless charging capabilities and what makes your technology different from the wireless charging that some of our listeners may have tried in the past, or maybe they're even using it today in their metal devices? Absolutely. So when we launched Resonant Link in 2018, it was really launched around this completely new way of building the coils that sit at the heart of a wireless charger. So our coils, which were invented at Dartmouth College in 2013 and really perfected over the next five years, have about five to 10 times lower losses or lower heat generation than a conventional wireless charging coil that people are familiar with or might be in a medical device today. And this really allows us to push the limits of what's possible on recharging for active implantables. So we just announced a Philvast project with Abbott where since 1965, people have been looking to eliminate the driveline on ventricular assist devices, but kept running into a heat generation problem. And in just nine months of working with them, we were able to deliver on the specification, so over 10 watts of continuous power, uh, and, and show a path to market there for the first time. Another example of, of what this technology has enabled is today for a rechargeable spinal cord stimulator, it takes about two to three hours to recharge and patients need to sit very still because you can't jostle and, and misalign the, the coils at any time. We just came out and announced at Device Talks Boston a 2.5 watt charging platform for devices like spinal cord stimulators that reduces this charge time from two to three hours down to 15 to 20 minutes and lets patients move around while charging. So really at the end of the day, the technology is the foundation, but we're trying to deliver something that makes patients' lives better. 
That's great. We'll hear a little more from Resident Link CEO Grayson Zuloff a little later in the podcast. Once again, if you want to find out more information, go to resident-link.com. Well, let's let's go back a bit to when you 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 were at J and J. You you had a very senior position there. You probably had a, a good career track going forward, and you you took the opportunity to to become CEO of Boston Scientific. But people might forget what Boston Scientific was when you joined. I mean, it was, they had the great name, but it was struggling at the time. What led you to make that decision? To again, you had a safe path. You had a, a, a and maybe this goes to your leadership thing. Uh, your leadership philosophy. Well, what caused you to, to what, what opportunity did you see at Boston Scientific? So what happened there is I saw an opportunity. Boston Scientific, as you said, wasn't doing very well. Um, and at the time, our market cap was about $5 billion. We had five, million, 5 billion in sales, I think a $5 billion market cap. Um, and there was a significant amount of debt, mm-hmm. and there's lots of legal issues. And the company was not growing. And uh, the CEO had... Uh, Resigned the day after uh, an earnings call, and um, so that's not good. Got that. Um, and so I think I, they ultimately hired me because they couldn't find an experienced CEO who wanted it. <laughs> this is the real one. So I kind of slid in the back door. But the reason I took the job was I think it was the the culmination of the experiences I had before that. Yeah. And working at, at GE and learning what I did there, uh, running a startup where you really have to create a culture and enthusiasm and a vision for the company. And, and the skills I learned at J&J, I felt like I was ready to take on a company that was in trouble and have a chance to turn it around. I was 45 or so, so I knew I had some time mm-hmm. if I could get it going to make it a really special company. And through the work of all of our uh, great leaders around the world, uh, that's what we've done. So now we've, our market cap's like $75 billion, and we're growing to the very high end of our peer group. And we have so much exciting future. But I, I made that decision because I felt I had the, the skills to help do it and a longer-term vision for it. And I was super motivated. As a matter of fact, there was a quick story I'll tell. When I was trying to make the decision, uh, other than my wife, Julie, nobody knew I was debating whether to stay or to go. So I recruited personally a consultant. I won't name the consultant, terrific person, and said, help me make this decision. So he did a week analysis. Uh, one week, he gave me a binder on a Friday that said, Essentially, do not take this job. Stay where you are. <laughs> then I had an interview on Saturday, the next day, and I called him on my way home from the interview. He goes, you must be so relieved to not take this job and go to New Jersey on Monday morning. I said, I took the job. <laughs> said, what, the, what the F-bomb? And, uh, Just had to touch the stove. Huh? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I did it because it was a massive challenge, and, and I knew with a little bit of time we could do it, and it's a special place. Was there a moment in the interview where you were like, yeah, I'm doing this? When I want, when, when I wanted when to do you, it, yeah. When you wanted, when you knew, like you went and saying, "I'm going to tell the story." This is kind of a weird story. Yeah. So where were everyone? So good? truth, I went. I was at the interview and I didn't even know. This is embarrassing. I'm at the interview, not sure if I want the job. And they actually said to me, "We're not sure you want the job." I'm thinking to myself, "How do they know? They, how do they know that?" <laughs> uh, so truth, uh, truth be told, I I asked to be excused from the interview, and I went to the. I can't believe I'm telling this story. I went to the men's room, and I uh, looked in the mirror. And I had done all this analysis. I had binders of information. I had the consultants say, don't do it. I had done every pro and con possible. And I finally looked in the mirror and looked at myself in the eye and said, Mike, it's Monday morning. You didn't take this job. How do you feel? And my whole body went, ugh. And I came back and I said, I want this job. And they ended up hiring me. That's great. That's going with the gut. All that analysis kind of out the the window. (laughs) So that's that's a fantastic story. And I think it's something that, that, that 
yeah, you got to listen to 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 what your gut is telling you. So you get there. What uh, what were the first steps you did? Did you do do you look at culture first? Is that the first thing you need to fix? Is culture, or do you have to other things to do even before that when you're turning around a company? Well, it was a benefit of one. I think the experiences I had before, and sometimes it's helpful to bring external people in the company. I'm yeah. super proud of Boston that we have great de talent depth and great succession planning internally, but sometimes it's helpful to bring in somebody external who just is new to everything, new, fresh eyes on things. And so beyond the financial performance, which wasn't very good at the time, it was obvious to me that the team uh, was getting used to losing. Uh, it was difficult to recruit good people. And uh, the culture was very heavy. Uh, we had tons of layers. And so I was able to uh, pretty quickly uh, make the company leaner. And, and we removed a few layers in the company because there was too many layers between me and the, and the leaders. So we kind of removed a bunch of leaders to make it faster okay. and more faster decision making. And then what I'm proud of um, is almost like a startup from Global Healthcare Exchange. And I'll tell you a quick story. I won't give the name of the company, but I was in China in a big company in China. I was over there uh, two months after I joined and I had dinner with him and he goes, congratulations. I'm like, thank you. He goes, your company is an aging elephant. That's what he said to me. I'm like, holy cow. All right. And so we use that as a motivator. I brought that home. And we actually thought of it as a startup. Let's create Boston Scientific. We created Advancing Science for Life. We changed the colors of the company. We created new values as a company. Like, you don't do that with established. We started over. And this is the company that we want to be 10 years from now. And we really excited our new leaders around that. And we created our mission and our goals and Advancing Science for Life and uh, got built in some enthusiasm in the company. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to hire new, new leaders who I knew. And then uh, we really changed the operating model completely. So then we created business unit leaders who had global responsibility. So now rather than just worried about the US, our sales in China were $50 million. Now they're a billion dollars. Wow. Now we created global business unit leaders. So people like Megan could lead globally and get measured globally. Um, and so we just did a lot with our, our operating model, our compensation, our values, our culture, bringing uh, patients to our uh, employees to see the impact we have on patients. And then most importantly, we just revamped our whole portfolio strategy. At the time when I joined, drug looting stents and CRM were 50% of our portfolio mix. And those markets, for, if you're in this area, uh, essentially don't grow. And today, those two products combined represent about 15% of our sales. It used to be over 50. And so many of these businesses we're in right now, we weren't in. So we really looked at how do we, uh, we were growing negatively in markets that grew zero. And now we're in markets that grow seven, and mm -hmm. we typically grow a little bit faster than that. And so we really modified the portfolio quarter after quarter through M&A, through alliances, through organic R&D, consistently over 10 years to put ourselves in faster growth markets along the way. And you can't do that overnight. And that's what we continue to do now. So it's a combination of the people culture first. For me, it's the job's not that hard. It's people culture first mm -hmm. and innovation and be constantly looking for innovation. And as soon as you get settled on people and on innovation, then your growth slows, then you lay off people. So you have to be really restless on making sure you have great talent and culture and innovation. So where is the culture today compared to where it was after you turned things around maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. Have you maintained that same culture that, you, that got you the turnaround, or has it evolved since then? 
And I'd like to pick up on the point you said earlier about your, your concerns about the future and how you want to make sure you don't become slower and, and, and perhaps less responsive. So the culture thing's a bit gooey, and I like to think we have this great culture, but a culture is local. Okay. So we have these great signs about Boston Scientific Vance for Life, here are our values, but you might be uh, on a plant floor in Costa Rica. I'm just making this up, and your manager's not so good, and your manager's not inclusive, and mm -hmm. your manager isn't patient-focused and so forth. And so I like to think our culture's great, but culture's local. It's oftentimes what your supervisor or manager is. And so we spend a lot, we have certainly spent a lot of time at the corporate level in terms of our communications and what's important to us and how we speak to our employees and our leaders do all of that. But we really try to uh, deeper in the organization uh, with our great HR teams and our leaders to really push that culture locally mm -hmm. and test for that as much as we can. Because as you get bigger and we're in 130 countries, that experience can really vary based on what region you're in and what business you're in. So I don't think you can ever be satisfied that the culture's good, check. Yeah. I was in Spain two weeks ago and our average employee age there, we have 350 employees I was meeting with, our average age was 33. So those people don't remember 10 years ago. Many of them had been with the company for two years. And so the culture for them is what that leaders in Spain do. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's obvious, but we, I think you can never be, feel like you've checked, done the box on that because you're always having new employees join, you're acquiring companies, you're modifying. And, um, and even post COVID, you have to kind of rev that culture up again. I will have our final visit with sponsor Resident Link. Once again, I'm speaking with Grayson Zuloff, the CEO. Grayson, how do you see the medical device industry changing? So everyone knows that rechargeable is a better patient experience than something that needs a surgery to replace it. But right now with conventional recharging systems, it's so frustrating for patients. It's so slow. It's so difficult to align. The implant depths are really shallow that a lot of patients and clinicians actually select a device that they'll need surgery for instead of one that's rechargeable. And the number one complaint for spinal cord stimulators is the recharge experience. So Resonant Link's goal is to use our technology, our tools, our team to really make rechargeable the standard of care and make it something that patients, clinicians, and device makers all embrace wholeheartedly and opt into as something that's better for patients to keep living their lives. Great stuff, Grayson Zuloff. Thanks to Resident Link for sponsoring this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Once again, go to its website for more information. That is resident-link.com. All right, so we're going to pick up the interview with Mike Mahoney at a point where someone inadvertently leaned against a light switch and uh, the darkened room turned into this bright room where we could see all the audience. So you'll see Mike Mahoney and my reaction to that. Let's listen. So what level levers do you see yourself pulling to, again, avoid growing to a point where you're maybe complacent or, or unresponsive? What, what are you going to be doing in the coming years as you, you're, you've got great growth projected? How do you manage that and make sure you stay lean or stay aggressive? Well, we, at Lean, we actually look at like crazy basic things like spans and layers all the time. So we want to make sure we're, we're agile that way, yeah. uh, which is always a good fundamental. But I think as you get bigger, you need bigger bets to grow the company. Okay. And so we do pretty extensive, uh, we have a pretty good innovation strategy between our organic R&D. We spend like almost 9, 10% on R&D. So, you know, about a billion wow. and a half in R&D and about a third of that's clinical. 
So we, we were pretty intentional about um, our R&D spend organically and how much of that R&D is on incremental things versus uh, more transformational things. And so we try to push more of that dollars towards higher growth, um, transformational pieces and push more of that sustaining R&D into places like Costa Rica or India or China mm. uh, to make incremental improvements. So our R&D teams are focused on bigger things. So we, because otherwise, if you don't do that, it's a tendency to work on the less bigger things that are maybe easier to do. So we look at how we spend our organic R&D, and then we map out uh, potential M&A companies that we like that we don't really have the best capability to do internally. And then I think what we've done a really good job is this venture portfolio. I mentioned Ferripulse, where we were the Series A investor. The reason we created this venture portfolio 10 years ago is our balance sheet kind of stunk. We didn't have much money. There, hello, everyone. Uh, no. Good to I see you. I thought I was by myself with you. Last call, everybody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And so we created this venture portfolio. The reason we did it was a necessity. Our balance sheet wasn't very good. And so now, uh, over the years, we've acquired uh, 20 companies from our venture portfolio. And the venture portfolio scouts around the world for, for companies. And some of them are great, some of them haven't worked. But we t typically get in earlier. So it's a combination of our organic R&D, mm M&A -hmm. that we do, and early venture bets that form our overall portfolio strategy. And we constantly, so, so one thing I do is uh, sometimes when we, and the team doesn't want to do M&A or doesn't want to do venture bet, I ask them to review with me the deals that they turned down before I ever saw them. <laughs> um, and just, just to ensure that we feel like that we're taking the appropriate level of uh, risk sometimes. Interesting. And what does that show, the reviewing the deals that they, they didn't show you? Do they? So they're usually smart. <laughs> <laughs> just proven their track record. Yeah. So let's just talk a, a bit about where, uh, how things are going today. You reported an excellent, or the, currently, you reported an excellent first quarter, 12% uh, growth in sales over the same period of last 14. year. 14. Sorry. 14%. Yeah. Typo. Okay. I don't know what happened there. Uh, this com that comes at a time when other companies are reporting a lot of headwinds, we're supply chain, uh, many different things that are, I think, are legitimate, but they're slowing other companies down. How are you maintaining 14%? Uh, and We're not going to maintain 14. Why not? Uh, that'd be too hard. Uh, <laughs> we guided uh, 8 to 10 for the full year. Okay. So well, um, how do you achieve 14%? And how, how, you, how do you maintain growth in this, in this sector? And how do, you, how do you see things? Are they as... as well, so no, the, uh, all the supply chain stuff is a massive problem. Yeah. So pre uh, if you look at our cost base, our raw materials, stranded overhead and manufacturing plants and so forth, uh, our cost base is four, about a little over $400 million post-COVID than it was pre-COVID. Like one-timers wow. from COVID. Uh, everything from your raw material costs are so much higher now. Uh, the shortage of chips and shortage of products, they, therefore our, our suppliers, not, no, nobody here would do it, can jack up their prices quite a bit to, and we, you know, we want to buy it. So that's $400 million. And so I'm proud that last year, despite that, we actually improved our operating margin about 50 basis points. But the reason we've been able to do it is we have a super strong supply chain team, operations team. So we've had fewer back orders than some of our competitors. And we've been able to work on the productivity of our plants quite well uh, post-COVID. And thankfully, we have a very strong innovation cadence right now. So in Europe, we grew 20% in the first quarter. Mm -hmm. And so why I'm so bullish about the uh, future is many of those products that are driving that growth in Europe are be launching in the US 
from you know, now over the next two years. So it's always about uh, the innovation that we've created is driving the growth, and we have an excellent operations supply chain team with great depth globally that have helped us manage the supply chain issues better than most, although it's still been a big sh challenge for us. How about the other uh, challenges that the, the sectors have? How are you seeing things currently? Are things improving overall? Is the climate improving all, of, all overall? Are the skies clearing for medical device companies, or is it as challenging as it was, say, a year ago? It's better, for sure. I, I, I travel a lot in the field. I was at Mayo Clinic in Rochester just yesterday. And I'd say, in general, the staffing shortages are, are improving. Okay. Uh, I would say uh, the labor turnover at hospitals is getting better. Um, that's good. Uh, the backlogs of patients are getting slightly smaller. But hospitals are under tremendous pressure. And uh, that's one benefit. I'm not trying to make this a Boston Scientific commercial, but as an interventional medicine company, you know, our job, uh, what's amazing is most of the procedures we do uh, can be done in less than an hour and the patient can be home in the same day. And that is a huge win for hospitals because hospitals don't want to have patients to stay for two days, three days, four days. And so what we, we try to do is disrupt general surgery, like our endo business. We bought this company called Apollo. How do you take things that are done in a general surgery way, two or three days in the hospital, and do them with endoluminal surgery techniques? They can be done the same day. Mm -hmm. You can have a Watchman device implanted to reduce your risk of stroke and get up blood thinners and be in the hospital at 8 a.m. and be home at noon uh, with, a, with a device in your heart. You know, TAVI procedures that Edwards and Medtronic and others do. So uh, interventional, I think, is such a great benefit longer term as a company because hospitals are so under so much cost pressure. And anything we can do to speed up procedure time, less general anesthesia, get them out of the hospital quicker, mm -hmm. uh, align them to be done in an outpatient setting is a big, big win. So what we try to do is disrupt surgical products, whether it be general surgery, cardiac surgery, disrupt pharma. And if we can do that well and safely, and have customer and have patients, you know, have cancer treatment the same day, cardiology treatment same day, uh, deep brain stimulation product for Alzheimer's same day. It's a win for the hospitals and it's a win for the patients, and it's all done through interventional uh, techniques rather than open surgery. And with the, I'm just curious with the rise of ASCs uh, in non-hospital, non-hospital-based clinical settings, is that that would seem to be a nice fit for an interventional business and really kind of. Fitting your sweet. Yeah, you see, like Stryker was up here, a great company. They're you know doing hip and knee replacements and yep. ASC. You put a pacemaker in now in an ASC. That would never happen a few years ago. I wouldn't be surprised if, if AFib, uh, which traditionally has been a two or three hour procedure, will be done with this uh, pulse field ablation in 45 minutes. Wouldn't be surprised to see that be an outpatient wow. procedure in a couple of years. Uh, so. That's why interventional medicine is an amazing business. There's, it's, there's so much innovation that can be uh, created. Um, and it fits the moment where hospitals are under such uh, economic stress. And we launched the Boston Scientific Talks podcast recently and uh, had a great episode on your peripheral vascular space. Give us an overview, overview of that. Yeah, it's a, so peripheral vascular is an uh, amazing business. When I joined it, we just had some balloons and stents. Now it's a $2 billion business, uh, but it's really three divisions. It's arterial uh, business, a venous business, and interventional oncology, which I'm really proud of. Um, and we bought a company called BTG, uh, which has a, a Y90 a radioactive therosphere uh, product and cryo and so forth. So it's those three segments. And so we treat basically their uh, uh, arteries and veins and so forth uh, everywhere except in your heart. That's our 
cardiology business. And I was just uh, at Northwestern Medical Center. Um, I won't give too much detail about it, but knock on wood, we'd be incredibly proud if this ever worked out with this Y90 product that we treat uh, liver cancer with today very effectively. Uh, doctors have been very impressed with the uh, efficacy of the liver cancer that we had approval from the FDA to do a safety study wow. for a glioblastoma, uh, which would be remarkable. So we're essentially making these radioactive beads even smaller. And uh, we, it's a 20-patient safety trial, and I was able to see the third patient, and it's remarkable um, so far very, very early. And we'll see if that works. But it's, um, it'd be an amazing treatment for a disease that's uh, uh, awful. Uh, for, for patients and family members. So we try to uh, look at our portfolio near term the next three years and invest in things that are five to seven years away. And if we can potentially make an impact with Y90 with glioblastoma and take that to other uh, uh, organs like prostate cancer and others, uh, it's remarkable. But that's what that division does. Okay, great. And I have to ask, and you can tell me not to, there were rumors of you acquiring another peripheral vascular company and I haven't cleared this. Any, are you looking at M&A in the peripheral vascular space? And you can just stare at me and I'll go into a different. Yeah, we would never comment. We're always looking at, uh, we have a pretty acquisitive company. Uh, we just acquired Apollo endosurgery uh, uh, about a month ago. It's been terrific for us for endoluminal surgery. We just did a deal in China. So we're always looking at things. Yeah, okay. Uh, we, you talked a bit about Megan Scanlon, neurology. She's going to be presenting here tomorrow right on the stage. Uh, she's way analyst. smarter. Yeah. She's an MIT engineer, so she's, she's good. <laughs> <laughs> she would have got a job at GE just like that. Yeah, she wouldn't have to sell cash <laughs> registers. <laughs> uh, talk about the urology space a little bit. So that's another division I'm really proud of. It was $500 million or so uh, years ago, and it was kind of just not ignored, like our peripheral vascular business. That's really what we did, is we, we shined a light on our businesses like urology, peripheral interventions, endoscopy, EP, that before were completely ignored, because everything went to drug loony stents and CRM. So we essentially increased the R&D budgets and all those and took it away from CRM and drug loony, because you, you have to make choices. So we took money away from those other businesses and, and fueled these other ones that have been dormant for so long. Mm -hmm. And under Megan's leadership now, it's a $2 billion business that grows almost 10% a quarter. And um, through the combination of uh, organic R&D, she'll talk about this product called Lithview tomorrow, which is a single-use scope, which yep. is amazing, and acquisitions. We've done three or four nice acquisitions. We've created a really wide portfolio in urology with differentiated uh, products in between. So what we try to do is we're not as big as Medtronic, we're not as big as J&J, &J, but we try to be the category leader in the businesses that we're in, mm -hmm. such that if you or I are a urologist and we have our own outpatient setting, that Boston Scientific can provide you the widest portfolio for all of your urology needs and differentiated technology within there that gives us some contracting power to to pull together the entire portfolio. So you have differentiated products like our Lithview scope, um, like this, this, she'll tell you the whole ecosystem we're building with AI there, with our, uh, with our male implants, our BPH products, our cancer products. So it's such a wide portfolio and there's unique innovation within there that we're able to contract with um, urologists for the entire portfolio um, to help service them better and give us more uh, growth. Interesting. Uh, anything new in the CRM space? We kind of talked about you've, you've kind of mentioned it a few times, but anything you want to cover in CRM? In CRM, uh, it's an it's a incredibly powerful, life-saving product. It's a, it's a flattish market. Yeah. Uh, there's innovation and lead lists that you see. 
uh, leadless pacemakers and so forth that we're involved with. We have a leadless pacemaker that ties to our SICD product. Um, more, and you, and you, we leverage AI uh, to do more remote diagnostics and so forth in that area. But the area that's growing faster for us in CRM is our diagnostics business. Okay. So you know, our loop recorders, our Holter monitors, our two-week uh, Holter monitors. So the diagnostics portfolio uh, attached to our CRM business uh, enables that to grow faster because the CRM market's pretty mature. Interesting. Uh, and this question might have made might have made more impact a year ago or so. But Boston Scientific, you you haven't really entered the the ro robotics space or haven't played it, made any bets in the robotics area. And, and I think a year ago or two years ago, might have been seen as more glaring. I think. Other companies have had some challenges that maybe show, indicate that it's a difficult bet to make. Uh, was there any ever, ever any consideration of a robotics application that Boston Scientific could get around? It would Not really. No? We look at it as, again, we're interventional in medicine. Yeah. So catheters that get stuff anywhere in your body and hopefully you're out the same day. And robotics typically have done really well for general surgery companies. Yeah. And Intuitive is an amazing company. And they do it best in class. And so that we haven't had the uh, clinical need to have a robot, nor will we be very good at it. We're really great at devices. Yeah. And Intuit is probably not great at devices. So I think sometimes you have to know what you're really good at and, avoid, and vo to avoid wasting a lot of money. Um, so one, we didn't see the clinical need for it for our business. And two, I don't think we'd be good at it. So we, we'd rather continue to press hard on med tech and enable our products to be used with robots um, is better for us than distracting us and not doing our med tech strategy and portfolio and putting a bunch of money into robotics where we're not very good. Mm -hmm. And I don't think an intuitive will ever be as good at med devices as we are. And we'll never be as good at robots as they are. That's a good reason. Fantastic. Well, you've been very generous with your time and very funny. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>